0: Good morning, everyone. It's a joy to be with you and gather and to sing the Lord is our salvation. Before we get into a time in the word this morning, I want us to spend some time just to get caught up to date on what's happening. Fifty years ago today, the Supreme Court of the United States made one of the most atrocious decisions in the history of our country. Last year, when we marked the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, we prayed that that would be the last Sunday that we would have to pray for the end of Roe vs. Wade, and in God's good providence, such has come to pass. And we are grateful, of course, for the writing of a terrible wrong and an immoral injustice. But if we thought that that was the end, we were sadly mistaken. It was really only the end of the beginning. The battle continues for the sanctity of human life, and it's a battle that will need to continue to be waged going forward. I think we all pray for the day when the idea of abortion would not only be illegal, it'll be inconceivable, that we'll develop such a culture of life, of affirming the importance of each human being, that we will rejoice, even this morning, listening to the sounds of children around me. I thought that's that's our hope, that God continues to bring children into the world. Today, there are 18 states in our country that have some type of abortion restrictions, six others that have had state bans overturned by their respective supreme courts. But the practice of abortion is still legal in many states, and in many states, they have removed all restrictions altogether, including the state of California where the state will offer to pay for abortion, even up to the moment of crowning, will refuse health care after the child survives abortion, and will pay for those who can travel to the state to pay for those costs. Today, even as we celebrate a post-Roe world, there will be 2,300 abortions still performed in our country just today. Many of them will be performed by Planned Parenthood, which is still the biggest performer of abortions in, the wor- in, the, in our country today. Though they lie about their statistics and they say that only 3% of their functions are abortions. In fact, they make all of their money from the performance of abortions and perform one every 89 seconds. Now the pressure is on to get local pharmacies to agree to handle over-the-counter or abor- anti-abortion drugs through prescription and Walmart, I'm sorry, Walgreens and CVS have already agreed. We're still waiting on what Walmart and Rite Aid, those those are the four largest pharmacy chains in the country will do. We can't even get a born alive bill passed through Congress, which means if a baby happens to survive the horror of abortion, it is not required to give that child medical attention. There was an attempt, it did pass the House of Representatives this past week, but one of the major political parties will not even support that basic medical attention to a baby that survives abortion, which takes the level of inhumanity beyond description. So the battle continues. But the plea that I have is that we not lose heart, that we continue to pray, that we continue to promote, that we continue to educate, because The key will be one-on-one engagement with our neighbors, with our friends, with our co-workers. We need to win hearts and minds with truth and love, not with rancor and yelling. We cannot fight today's battles or tomorrow's battles with yesterday's strategies. We need to engage this battle on our knees. We need to promote the truth. We need to promote a culture of life where we see the dignity and value of all people from the moment of conception, to the time of natural death. I would encourage you to consider some of the videos that are put out by a ministry called Live Action out of Los Angeles, started by Lila Rose, who when she was a 15-year-old girl said, well, if nobody else is going to stand against abortion, I will, and has dedicated her life to educating people about abortion. And they have videos. Will they change their mind? And they do on-the-street interviews with people and show them through animation what abortion is and educate people about what is happening and look for alternatives. This battle will be won as we are on our knees, repenting over the sins of our country, over the sins of our hearts, proclaiming what is true, upholding the dignity of human beings and a loving interaction with people day by day in a winsome and a compassionate way and in a loving manner. There are some ministries I could recommend that you might consider looking at to support the Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America Fund, or Pro-Life Across America, or our own Caring for Women here in Paradise, or Care Net, I'm sorry, in Oroville, or Carinet in Paradise. There are ministries that we can engage in to promote and to educate the sanctity of human life. But before we get into the word this morning, let's go together to the throne of grace. Giving thanks for a judicial decision that's been overturned, but continuing to seek the Lord of life, that that culture of life would permeate more and more across our land. Father, we turn to you in the name of Jesus. He came and he said he is the way, the truth, and the life, and we know that that is eternal life, but also in him we live and move and have our being. And we still sin against you by not considering the value and dignity of fellow human beings. Father, we give thanks that you heard the cries of our hearts, and in a moment of sobriety and sanity, our Supreme Court overthrew the wicked ruling of Roe versus Wade. But, Father, we know that those who enrich themselves through the shedding of innocent blood will not stand idly by Animated by the forces of evil and hate and of darkness, they continue to promote the lies that lead to 2,300 children being put to death in the wombs of their mothers every day. So, Father, we pray that you would stir our hearts to respond with compassion and mercy, with an open hand, not a closed heart, with resources that you have given us to educate and to promote and to encourage and to help and come alongside. Those who are facing difficult challenges. But also that we would be steadfast in continuing to promote God's beautiful picture for love, for sex, for marriage, for the human family. And that as we promote that beautiful picture and that beautiful image and live it out and show it to others, we invite others to come and join us. So, Father, we continue to plea, we continue to pray. Would you hear the cries of our hearts, Father, and the hearts of your children as they gather across this land today? And we pray that you would shake us, stir us, bring our leaders to repentance, bring our legislatures to common sense, and that a pro-life culture would begin to permeate more and more across our land. May it be, Father, bring it about for your glory and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I encourage you as we continue to make sure your cell phones are turned off as we live stream the service. We don't want interruptions during the message. For those of you joining us online this morning, good morning. Thank you for being with us. We trust that you are not only praying with us, but wherever you are, you have your copy of God's word open. Blessed that we have a copy of God's word in front of us as we study it this morning. An illustration comes out of the Philippines given by the pastor of a local church there that shows the rest that Jesus offers, but also then the need that we have to take him at his word and to trust him in that rest. In the Philippines, a carabao cart, carabao is the word for water buffalo, the carabao cart is a flat wagon pulled by a beast of burden, and the carabao carts are used to carry loads from one place to another. And one day there was a driver of a caribou wagon was on his way to the market when he overtook an old man carrying a heavy load and struggling underneath it. Taking compassion on him, he invited the, the old man to ride in the wagon, and gratefully he accepted. And after a few minutes, the driver turned to see how the old man was doing, and to his surprise, he found him still straining under the heavy weight of the bag, for he had not taken the burden off of his shoulders. And put it onto the wagon. He had resisted the offer of rest. He got on the wagon, but didn't lay his burden down. As Jesus calls us to enter into his rest, he calls us to come into his presence and to lay our burdens down. But lest we lose sight of the context of what that means, in the context of Matthew 11 and 12, the context is one of Jesus coming to offer rest from the rules and regulations of the scribes and the Pharisees. They had turned the law, which was intended to be a blessing, into a heavy burden in layers of man-made religions and rules and regulations, which brought about discouragement and dissension and division and judgmental emotions as those who made the laws tried to impose the laws. The scribes and the Pharisees were putting burdens on people that they could not support, and it robbed them of the joy in their service to the Lord. Because as one finds rest in Jesus, as one gets on his cart, and he is the path of righteousness, and he is our righteousness, as we lay our burdens down, we find the Christian life to be a delight. The journey of walking with Christ to be a place of hope, a place of joy, a place of victory, a place of love, a place of spiritual fruit and of reverential love of our great God. And that way then the commands of God do not become burdensome because we love God, we want to please him. And as we enter into the rest that Jesus offers and take up his yoke and walk with him as he says, follow me. He not only shows us what we are to do, he gives us the strength to do it. Well, in a similar way, God had given the Sabbath as a gift and a blessing to people. It was to be a day of rest, yes, of ceasing from all normal work and a day that was to be for service to God and to men. But over time, things were added to it. The Sabbath was given for us to love God and to love others. And we saw last week that Jesus had an encounter with the Jewish leaders over the purpose and the role of the Sabbath. He made it clear that it is good to meet human needs on the Sabbath. It is good to show mercy to others, which is of higher importance to God than sitting in judgment on them. As the true temple, and he said, I am greater than the temple, the one greater than the temple is here. He has come into the world and is now the meeting place between God and man. He is the Lord of the Sabbath who wants to be the Lord of our lives. Well, the passage that we will look at today, we will see round two of the interaction that Jesus has with the religious leaders over the Sabbath. And we're reminded that not only is it a day of rest and a day of service, he's going to go on and show us that it's a day of mercy and will give us an example of mercy as he heals a man and shows his value as one created in the image of God. And so in honor of God, And of his holy word. I invite you to stand as we read our passage this morning that we will study together. Matthew 12, verses 9 to 14. And the inspired word of God says he went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. And let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is the truth. We thank you that you are its author. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that helps us to understand it. And we thank you that the goal is to cause our eyes to turn more and more in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is to him we turn and in whose name we pray. Now, last week we shared some of the rules that the Pharisees had added in their effort to keep the Sabbath. We won't rehearse those here. I'll just give you a few more. And the Mishnah, which was 39, they contained 39 articles dealing with the idea of work and what could and could not be done on the Sabbath, they went into all sorts of rules and regulations for the 39 categories. For example, you could write a short word on the Sabbath, but not a long one. Only a couple letters would do. You could not spit on the ground on the Sabbath for fear that its moisture would dent and soften the soil, which would be seen as plowing. And if you spit on the ground and it happened to land on a seed, in addition to plowing, you would now be guilty of sowing on the Sabbath. And on and on it goes throughout the 39 articles of what we can and cannot do. But as we saw last week, it was allowed to do good things and acts of service and mercy on the Sabbath, even if it meant not following some prescribed aspects of the law. So we today who are in Christ, who know that he has risen from the dead, that he has fulfilled all righteousness, that he has given us his spirit, know that we should continue in that spirit of rest and avoid, if possible, normal work on the Lord's day. Let it be a day that we are fed by him, that we are encouraged by him, that we're strengthened by being with his people, where he reminds us that he is our provider, that he is the one who indeed is our lives. But we also understand that there is a need for certain people to perform certain acts on the the Lord's day. We would want a doctor to be on his duty on the Lord's day when a life is being threatened. We would want the power company to be ready to turn off the gas line if an explosion was imminent. We would want first responders to be available. We would want those who are ready to perform acts of service and mercy to protect the well-being of the community. But we should generally avoid those things that normally we do during the rest of the week, set it apart as a gift, as a time of refreshment, as a time to do those things in the Lord of service to others. And so Jesus said, I desire mercy Not sacrifice, he's addressing the Pharisees and the scribes who had added so much to the law that they made it burdensome and they were blinded and in their arrogance they expected the people to follow their own man-made laws and were quick to launch their judgment and condemnation for those who did not conform. But Of course, it was their expectations that were wrong. Reminds us that the human heart is, is fickle. The human heart can be easily deceived. The human heart can be easily hardened. The human heart is often stubborn. I pray that we would let this call to mercy permeate down into the depths of our beings, experienced by the grace of God, and not be like the Pharisees. For he who looks for faults seldom finds anything else. Jesus says that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, and he gave an example of that authority last week. He will do it again this week. In Matthew, he's already shown us that he has authority over sin, authority to forgive sin. He has authority over the correct interpretation of the law, saying that they point to him. He's already told us that he is bringing righteousness greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And now he tells us he has authority over the Sabbath, which directly challenges those religious leaders in that time. And so now, as we get to our sermon outline, we get to our first major point, which is the devious attitude, the devious attitude. Attitude. Our text begins, he went on from there and entered their synagogue. We know that Jesus often spent time in the synagogues. He even had a quote-unquote home synagogue in Capernaum, which was where he launched his ministry in Galilee. And we know that the synagogue was the center of social and community life. It was also the place of religious instruction that people would learn about the ways of the Lord. And you can be sure that Jesus was in the synagogue every Sabbath day. We don't know which synagogue is mentioned here, but notice that Matthew refers to it as their synagogue, perhaps a subtle sign that this brewing dissension and division between Jesus and the religious leaders just start to come more and more to the fore. If we follow the parallel account in Luke's gospel, we know that this is a different Sabbath day than the one that's referred to in Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. But we see there's an ongoing struggle between the Pharisees over who has authority and over what is allowed on the Sabbath. So at that time, Jesus, he went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. Now, if we look at the accounts of Mark and Luke and begin to compare, we think that they're setting up a trap. In fact, all three say that they did this to try to accuse him the word that is translated withered here actually is the word for dry or shriveled and in most contexts it's an agricultural context it refers to plants and branches that have lost their fruitfulness in their life more than likely it is just referring to his hand not to his entire arm and luke tells us that it was his right hand that was affected And so we have this man because of the the, the difficulties of the social context of his day that would have been disqualified from some of the activities of the synagogue because he was not perfect. But it would also be difficult for him to work and to provide for himself. And you can imagine then what that does to him as a man who wants to work and take care of himself suddenly being in a position where he cannot. In fact, an early um, account, a legendary account, so it's not found in the Scriptures, but an early legendary account of this story quotes the man as saying, I want my hand to be restored so that I can work for myself. Now, that's not in the scriptures, but it fits. We could imagine that that's what our desire would be if we were in such a situation. We would want to be restored so that we could work. So they make sure that the man is noticed, that Jesus notices him. Then they ask the question, is it lawful? heal on the Sabbath? As I said, this was a trap. They were looking for a way to accuse him. They want to know what Jesus, who claims to be a teacher, if he will violate the Sabbath. And for many of the Jewish leaders of that day, they thought that healing was a type of work. In fact, directly, healing was not mentioned in the 39 articles of the Mishnah. And so the scribes and the Pharisees assumed it would not be allowed because they looked at particular details and tied it together. But in fact, there were some things that were allowed on the Sabbath. Healing was allowed on the Sabbath in matters of life and death. It was allowed in the assistance of childbirth, for example. Otherwise, if it was not in those restricted areas, they would look at it as work. So they look at this man who has a shriveled hand, and they say, Well, this is not a new situation. It's not, strictly speaking, a matter of life and death. It would certainly be inconvenient, and it would be better not to be so sick, but it was not life-threatening, so it should not be done on the Sabbath, at least in their minds. But Jesus, as the one who will come and defeat all sin and all of its effects, the Lord, the giver of life, the way, the truth, and the life, the resurrection, and the life, the one who will restore all that was lost in Adam, wants to show that he is Lord of the Sabbath and in a better position to decide when it is the best time to exercise his divine powers. So in response to their devious attitude, he offers the deft answer. Deft meaning clever or wise. So they ask the question that was on their mind as part of the setup, is, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And it's often not the question itself that is asked. That is the problem. It is often the attitude and the accusation that comes with it. And as the context makes clear, they're looking for a reason to accuse him. They did not want to grow in their understanding. They wanted to one-up Jesus. That's what a Pharisee always does. Well, in fact, in Exodus 31, provisions in the law were made for punishment, even death on the Sabbath. And if we look at verse 14 of Matthew 12, it seems to hint that they're moving towards that direction. But they were zealous, but without knowledge. They were zealous without spiritual wisdom. They were zealous, but it was animated by the flesh and not by the Spirit of God. Zeal is not always a sign of true spirituality. As Jesus would say in the Gospel of John, chapter 16, the day will come when those who kill the disciples of Jesus... think that what they're doing is for god and that may be what the scribes and the pharisees thought here but they were wrong jesus provides the correct understanding of the law the correct understanding of the sabbath the correct understanding of his messianic ministry and he will stand against all man-made traditions that get in the way of promoting true spirituality and he will do so with a display of mercy mercy which was allowed on the sabbath and he will use a lesser to greater argument or if it means it for this smaller thing how much more for this greater thing a lesser to greater argument and so we begin with the lesser you would help an animal which one of you he begins the statement He makes an appeal to everyone that is present on that day, not just to the the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, but he's appealing to everybody that's there, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. It was generally accepted in that day that one was allowed to help an animal, to even show mercy to an animal on the Sabbath. Think about the context. An animal was their sign of wealth. It was a sign of sustenance from which they gained food or labor or clothing or whatever. An animal was useful. It was where their investment were in their lives. They lived from what the animal would give them. They needed to take care of that animal. And if you think back to the law, if, if my animal injures the animal of my neighbor, I have to give restitution or replacement because I have taken value from my neighbor. Proverbs 12 recognizes that the righteous man will take care of the, the life of his beast. Because it is part of the wealth that God has given him to provide for his needs. And so to require or to rescue an animal on the Sabbath day would be allowed. But it would be hard work. You might have to get ropes. You might have to get down in. You might have to dig. You might have to pull. You might have to lift. That's vigorous labor. It would be allowed in that situation to procure the life of the animal. It would be the same thing you could help an animal that was in the process of giving birth. This was their resources that they had. If an animal was not left, was not helped, was left in the pit, it could die by morning. It would be a great loss. So some tried to find a halfway view and say, well, we won't do any work on the Sabbath and we won't help an animal. We'll just throw some food and water down there. We'll throw some things down there that maybe they can get some leverage and climb their way out. But the general rule was that you can help an animal on the Sabbath. And that's the sentiment that Jesus is displaying here. You could almost feel the intensity in his eyes as he looks around, knowing that they're trying to trap him. And he says, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into the pit, will not take hold of it and lift it out? In fact, it's probably for that reason that in Mark's account, he mentions that Jesus is angry with them. Yeah, he's angry for their obvious hypocrisy. That they would help this animal, but then they don't want to help this one who is created in God's image who is also in need. So that brings us to the second part of the argument. If the lesser is you would help an animal, the greater so you should help a man or a person. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? It's a straightforward statement. A man has more value than a sheep. A human being has more value than an animal. Back then, that would have been seen as an obvious truth, but perhaps we need to remind ourselves of that truth even today. Because we see extremes in the animal rights campaigns, we see the extravagance to which people will go to take care of their animals. We need to say the simple point. Animals are not equal to human beings. They're not created in the image of God. They're not objects of the redemption that is offered in Christ. They were created by God for the glory of God and given to man for his benefit over which he is to exercise wise and benevolent dominion. But we must avoid extremes. Animals are created beings of God. Therefore, they're to be treated with respect and in a humane manner. You respond to the giver of a gift by how you treat the gift. And so if God has given us provisions and he's given us possessions and he's given us animals, then we need to take care of them and show our respect and honor to God who is the giver of these gifts. The gifts that he gives brings value to life. They bring meaning. But they do not have the same value as human beings. And on the sanctity of human life Sunday, we need to affirm that it is those who are created in the image of God from the moment of conception to the time of natural birth who have greater value than our so-called fur babies. One of the effects of the fall into sin is that on the one hand, people mistreat And abuse animals, and that's wrong. The wanton destruction of something God has given is wrong. We're called to be stewards to exercise good dominion over creation. But on the other hand, we should not treat animals with more care and respect than we do fellow human beings. And what's interesting is some of these voices that cry the loudest about save the earth or save the animals have a very low view of human beings. Even throwing out a term called speciesism, which they see as a form of racism, of saying that humans have more value than man, uh, uh, humans have more value than animals, is a form of racism. This idea does not come from the mind of God, and so we neither abuse nor adore. We use the gifts that God has given us in a, in a way that is appropriate, and that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's teaching us the proper value and role and the importance of animals versus people. If the average person, and he would, would take care of his animal, how much more than should we be involved in taking care of people? If the average person takes care of his animal, and he does, and in this case, it's a sheep, how much more than will those who are in Christ want to take care of those who, first of all, if they're in Christ, are sheep of the good shepherd? But also of those who are not yet in Christ, but who could be the objects of redemption. And so he uses this lesser to greater argument in his very deft answer that he gives to the devious question that they had posed, which brings us thirdly then to the delightful act. Jesus has emphasized what can be done on the Sabbath in contradistinction to the scribes and the Pharisees who spent their time and effort on what is forbidden on the Sabbath. And they spend as much energy promoting and defending their man-made laws with as much vigor as the divinely given ones. Maybe even more so. That's what law making does. It creates law breaking. Because a pharisaical attitude can never promote righteousness and sanctification. The law was given to teach us to love God and to love our neighbor. The Sabbath was given for us to rest and to perform acts of mercy so that we might love God and love neighbor. And so scribble down in your notes Isaiah 58 as we read last week that the Sabbath if we follow the ways of God and we do it according to his ways we will find the Sabbath to be a delight, a joy because it is joyful to serve the one we love and we're called to love God. And love others, so Jesus stands in the synagogue on that day, and he says to the man, "Stretch out your hand he's going to show them that it is good to have mercy on the Sabbath. They wanted to trap Jesus, but they end up being trapped by themselves because he has already called them out, You would help your animal, why won't you help this one who is an image bearer? For Jesus meeting human needs. Because of who they are in God's image is primary. But Jesus doesn't back down to what would have been the pressures of the Pharisees. He, he calls to the man, even draws attention to him, draws attention to his condition so that all would see what it is that these Pharisees were opposing. They weren't doing this because they wanted to promote unity or truth or harmony or community. They wanted to catch Jesus in some type of wrongdoing. We see a spirit of, of anger and bitterness that has overtaken them as they want the control of the situation. And so they don't look out for what is good, just whether Jesus is going to toe the line that they have drawn in the sand. So Jesus calls the man forward, and he says, stretch out your hand. He elicits from him a response of faith. Show everyone your current condition. One can imagine perhaps he wanted to hide it. But he obeys. The text simply says, Matthew makes his story simple at times. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other now put yourself in that man's position we're not told how long he had this shriveled hand that kept him from working we're not told how long he was in that situation but imagine now with a hand that's not working and just by simply stretching it out it's restored can you not feel the joy that would rise up from within him and want to come out? Can he not feel the joy that his family would have, the joy of those that are there looking at this amazing miracle? He's now able to enter fully into life in the synagogue, fully into life with the community there. He could take care of himself. He feels his dignity coursing back through his veins as he can now be a man who can work for himself. But Jesus doesn't touch the man. He just gives the word. So technically, is that work if he just gives the word? He's the Lord of the Sabbath. We're told in the scriptures that he is the one through whom all things were created. He's the agent of creation. He's the sustainer of creation. He upholds all things by the, the word of his power. He doesn't need to touch the man. He only needs to say, stretch out your hand. And he has the authority to heal instantly because he came to redeem all that was lost in the fall into sin all that was lost in Adam's rebellion and so as part of his messianic ministry he performs physical miracles as a sign of the greater promise to come when he will fully redeem all that was lost body and soul in creation and in man and the animal kingdom he will give a healing here from a temporary physical condition that man will still physically die one day but as the healer and the savior, Jesus saves from all its sins and its effects. And so this healing is a sign of a greater healing one day when all of our bodies, souls, spirits, minds, wills will be truly healed fully and eternally. Jesus gave the word and the man was healed and the healing was immediate, instantaneous, and complete. He could walk out of that synagogue Ready to resume or ready to get back to what would have been a normal routine the next day as a healthy, functioning man with a hand that can do work. This was not, this was instantaneous, it was immediate, it was complete, it's not one of these fake miracles that prosperity preachers perform today, like Todd White, who goes out onto the streets and says, every problem you have is because, you know, you have one leg that's shorter than the other, sit down, I'm going to lengthen your legs so they're even. It's a sleight of hand, and it's a fraud, and they go back to the same conditions they had before, once the emotions have settled down. It's not like the false teacher Benny Hinn who carefully selects those he would heal so that they experience a temporary psychosomatic healing of emotion but who walk away just as physically impaired or who move away just as physically impaired as when they came. Jesus said, stretch out your hand. He gave a word that was enough. He has authority. He has power over sin and death, over disease and illness. He has Lord over the Sabbath. He performs a delightful act. He is a merciful Savior who loves to help his people and loves to show his great compassion and mercy. But in spite of that, we see the devilish action. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Without a doubt, there were many that day who would have rejoiced in what they had seen, including the man himself. But we're not. Our attention is not drawn to that here. Matthew wants to point out what will be the reaction of those who make their living by imposing man-made rules and religion, and whether they will rejoice even over something that was good. Do they rejoice? Do they praise the Lord? Do they enter into the celebration of a man who is restored? No, we're told they went out. They should have fallen down in their faces in repentance for their attitude and misunderstanding. They should have accepted Jesus' correction of their tradition and considered the wonderful results that have happened. Instead, they went out. If it wouldn't be their way, it wouldn't be any way. So they walk out of the meeting. You can almost imagine them storming off in a self-righteous tiff. Sin can so blind us that we're unable to see the good that is right in front of us. Not only do they go out and plot, they go out and conspire to destroy him. Now the intrigue, the false accusation, the hatred, it's now afoot. There's a plan afoot. They need to destroy him. There had already been plotting that had begun. That was perhaps part of this incident itself. Now, instead of, being, instead of trapping Jesus, they're trapped by him. And so they're going out to figure out how to get rid of this one they know that the death penalty can come on the Sabbath, but it had to be for grievous and blasphemous reasons. Healing a man and making him whole was not a violation of the Sabbath, it was only a violation of their man made rules. But their pride was hurt, their influence taken down, their ideas of what should be was being overturned, so Jesus has to go. So they leave, they meet. They're going to plot for ways. The word is there, destroy. The spirit of vindication and anger has overtaken them and their ability to see what the Lord is doing. They want to keep control. So in their power, they're willing, they're willing to do whatever it takes, to fight or worse. And as commentator David Turner says, it's a little ironic that a dispute over the finer points of Sabbath law leads the Pharisees to plan to break the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. You see what man-made religion does? It moves us to even violate the true principles that God has given us. Jesus warned us, did he not, when he was teaching in Matthew chapter 5, of not allowing hatred to build up in our hearts because to look at your brother in hatred was a form of murder. And now we see a living example here with these Pharisees and these scribes who turn against the Lord Jesus Christ. That, in a nutshell, is the history of the church, what we see happening in these verses, where the enemies of God who want to impose their way of doing things always seek to destroy the church, its people, its servants. We may be shocked that they could be this way. How could they look at what Jesus is doing and respond in such a way. But that's been the history of the church for 2,000 years. Philip Melanchthon was a great Reformation theologian who succeeded Martin Luther. And there were a lot of battles that went on during the Reformation to bring the church back to the gospel, to promote the beauty of the gospel, of an alien righteousness that makes us pure, declares us pure in Christ, and not as a result of the, the hard work or the Sacrifices and offerings we have to make. But Melanchton would would engage in, in battles, as did Martin Luther. And Martin Luther as his mentor had to tame him down at times. And one day Melanchton said to Luther, This day you and I will discuss the governance of the universe. We need to show them who's boss. We need to show them who's in control. We need to show them what to do. And Luther, in his response, said, This day you and I will go fishing. And leave the governance of the universe to God. Scribes and the Pharisees wanted to control everything. But the Lord of the Sabbath was there. He was the one before whom they should have bowed. He was the one that they should have rejoiced in. His attitude was, I will not allow these dissenting voices to distract from what we are called to do. He came to do his ministry and he would continue on. In spite of the false plots and fits of anger and accusations. He loved those he came to save. He showed love towards those who opposed him. He showed mercy because he is the source of all mercy. And he sends us out now that we would be his representatives in this fallen world. In Matthew 12, he has already told us that he is greater than David, greater than the priest, greater than the temple, and greater than the Sabbath. He is Lord of the Sabbath, and he's Lord of all. Next week, we'll see that Jesus is also the chosen servant of the Lord, and we'll get to see what that means in the ministry of Jesus as he lives it out, that though he knows who he is and will not back down from the opposition that he faces, he will also know that there's a time to be with the Father, to be strengthened in his presence, and so we'll look forward to celebrating prophecy being fulfilled in the life of Jesus as we continue on in Matthew 12 next week. But until then, what are some lessons we can learn? Because it is given as a day for rest and acts of mercy, we'll look to serve God and others even on the Lord's day. Because man is created in God's image, we will value people and serve those around us with dignity, respect, and love. That is what our Jesus has modeled for us. That is what he sends us out to do. Because Jesus remained faithful in the face of opposition, we will ask him to strengthen us so that we remain steadfast in our own ministry. We have all been called. We've all been set apart. We've all been told to go out and be instruments of righteousness in his hands. And he wants us to remain steadfast in those good and holy things, even in the midst of a dark world. And because God... Because Jesus shows us God's mercy and his power, we will choose to show mercy to others instead of judgment. And all of us need help then as the Lord would watch over the doors of our mouths, the doors of our hearts, the doors of our minds, and as those statements quickly formulate that we might lash out, we remember the mercy that we have received and say, oh God, have mercy even on me that I might manifest mercy towards others that are around me and seek to be those who do good to those around us. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for loving us so much that you gently and tenderly come alongside us and and prod us and move us and pull us and push us so that we become more like Jesus and that we walk the straight and narrow. And We are all so needy, Father, of your Holy Spirit to be our teacher and guide to understand the works and words of Jesus and to be empowered to live them out. But I thank you for a grace that is so lavish that it reached even us. And as it reached us, Father, it began that transforming work that will make us more like Christ and how we want to become more like Christ heart, soul, mind, attitude, action, decision, that we'd have the mind of Christ more and more. And so we thank you for the reminder that all of us are in process, all of us are on the way, but none of us has yet arrived. And so we ask for your guiding strength. Would you teach us this week, Father, what it is to be merciful in difficult circumstances, what it is to Obey the Lord Jesus Christ when it's hard, what it is to love those that are difficult. And as you empower us, would you use us for your glory and for the good of those image bearers around us with whom we long to share the gospel. Guide us this week, Father, in Jesus' name.